The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today, we talk with Dr. Stephanie Hull, President and CEO of Girls, Inc., a national organization focused on inspiring all girls to be strong, smart, and bold. Dr. Hull talks with us about helping young people bloom where they are planted and why neighborhood schools and out-of-school interventions help to cultivate talent wherever it's found. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Grow Kinder podcast. We are honored to have Dr. Stephanie J. Hull, CEO and President of Girls, Inc. with us today. Hi, Stephanie. This is Andrea. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Stephanie. This is Mia. Hi, Mia. We're so happy to have you with us, and I think it would be great for our listeners if we first could just hear a little bit about you and your background. And I know you've had various roles in education. So maybe we could just hear a little bit about what kind of brought you to education and some of the the roles that you've served. Sure. My background in education actually starts fairly far back. My grandmother on my father's side was an educator. She ran a school for what were then called the colored children in, uh, in her area. And so education's always been a strong value. My mother was an educator as well. She ran a program that bused kids in from Boston to the suburban schools in the town that I lived in. That was one of the oldest programs in desegregation in the state of Massachusetts. So I grew up really around people who not only cared about education, but cared in particular about equity in education. And although I think at certain points in my life, it was the last thing I ever anticipated, it was fairly natural for me to fall into education as a career. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I come from a family of nurses, and I feel like the the outsider that I, <laughs> that I didn't fall into that career path. But um, so many of the folks that we talked to had influential folks in their family that that had you know been in education and really communicated that as a core value. Mm-hmm. Likewise, I I had educators back to my grandmother also, and I, actually I was certain I would never do that. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when was it? Yeah. When when was the the point at which you knew that you would? It was some point in graduate school. I was getting a PhD. And it was just, there are so many pathways that the PhD opens up that are all in education. And it seems like a waste of education not to pursue education with a PhD. So I was convinced to do it. And I always sort of said, well, I'll try a few things. I'll I'll apply for maybe six or seven jobs. I won't apply madly across the whole country. I'll be selective. And if I get one of those jobs, then it is meant to be. I think it probably was always clear, you know, and I was in high school, this is probably the point, the definitive moment. I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, and there was a ninth grade English class that needed a substitute teacher. And my homeroom teacher sent me in to teach that class and said, just don't tell them you're a kid. And I taught English to ninth graders. (laughs) And it was so much fun that it really, you know, I think that that probably was the day when it happened, looking back on it. But it was just, it was just such a fun experience pretending to be an adult and doing something useful. That's a great opportunity (laughs) that you were given. You're currently uh, the CEO, president and CEO of Girls, Inc. Let's hear a little more about that organization and your role there. Girls, Inc., 
The mission of Girls Inc. is to inspire girls to be strong, smart, and bold. I've been president here for just over six months at this point, and certainly there's still quite a lot to learn about an organization this complex, but we are a national organization. We work with girls ages 6 to 18. There are 79 affiliates under the umbrella of Girls Inc., and we're working now in 350 cities. So this is it's programming that's delivered year-round. It's during out-of-school time, and we partner with schools and also in many locations have our own Girls Inc. centers. It's a comprehensive approach. What we're Mm -hmm. doing is working with girls, mostly, as I said, in out-of-school time, trying to equip them with the skills to navigate the barriers that they face. And of course, our girls are mostly from low-income communities, struggling with barriers about gender, economics, uh, social barriers, trying to help them to grow up healthy, educated, and independent. And we are pro-girl, all-girl. We have safe girls-only spaces that support these conversations. And I think we saw online that Girls Inc. was founded originally in 1864. Is that right? That's correct. It's a very old organization. Then it developed into Girls Clubs of America and then became Girls Inc. fairly recently. But it's the same organization. It's the same deep roots. And there are many affiliates that have been operating for really for all that time and stayed strong throughout the entire time. It is amazing. We're celebrating our 40th anniversary and we feel like our organization's been around a little while. When I read that about Girls Inc., I was like, that's a... Um, you know, that's that's big to take over uh, leadership of an organization that has such a deep history. It's true. Well, this is a supportive organization, just as they're very supportive of the girls they serve, the people in the different affiliates, the leadership of the affiliates and the board members and the staff here. They're people who have been in this for a long time, and they are every bit as welcoming and nurturing to those of us who join them as employees as they are to the girls that they serve. So it's really a wonderful organization to be part of in that respect. Well, so as you as you've just started, and you know you're in your first six months, what what have been sort of your as you came in your top priorities as the new leader? We are in the fifth year of a strategic plan, so it's actually been fairly easy in the sense that the priorities are laid out. These are not new priorities. What we're really trying to do is prove the concept and then grow the number of girls we serve. What is fortunate is that I arrived just as we are about to publish some research that is actually going to be nationally released in January that talks about the effectiveness of the Girls Inc. experience and of the work that we do. It's an external research survey that is based on some internal work that we've done annually. And so we're really looking forward to publishing that and to sharing the results of it. But on the strength of that, we are creating a strategic plan right now that will take us out over the next five years. So it really couldn't be a better moment to be a part of this, you know, coming in and having, you know, basically the hard lifting and heavy lifting has been done. The hard work has been done. And we have the luxury of really thinking about, you know, how will we get to more girls? How now that we know that the work we do is effective and that the proven programming really has the effect that we'd like it to have on girls. How do we just reach as many girls with that same level of quality as we possibly can? And do you have experiences in organizations or clubs from your youth that were, you know, focused on supporting girls or women that you're carrying with you in this work? I did not do this kind of thing when I was a girl, although I went to camp and I was, of course, in an all-girls cabinet camp. I didn't really have the all-girls experience until women and college. I went to Wellesley College as an undergraduate. And even there, it's not so much that the emphasis is on the all-girl environment, but it's more on the emphasis is on the potential of women and making it clear that women have every bit as much potential to do what they'd like to do and sometimes more potential to do it. So Wellesley was the first environment I've been in where there was never any question that a woman could do something. And 
I think I do bring that to this. I think I bring that here. And then I led the Brearley School, which is an all-girls school in which that same environment is, you know, carried down to girls who are much younger. I think it's one thing to get all the way through high school and then into college and be told now you have the potential to change the world. But to hear that message from five years old, six years old on, it's, I think it must just be incredibly powerful. And so for me, the the joy of this job is to carry that into younger and younger communities and, and to tell children, you know, to tell, mostly we talk to girls because we really are all girl, but I'd like boys to know too, that girls can do anything that, you know, that we're growing up in a world that still has these stereotypes of jobs that are for women and jobs that are for men and things that are easier or harder for girls to do. We really need to make use of people's talents a little bit more broadly and let people do what they're best at and what they care about and what they're passionate about and not group them by something that's really arbitrary. So Stephanie, I'm a little bit curious now about the outcomes, and I don't know if you can give us a sneak peek at all, but I'm I'm curious about sort of what, what at high level some of the effects that the Girls Inc. program is having. At the highest level, I can tell you that what we did was to create a study. Each year, we have our own internal study called the Strong, Smart, Bold Outcomes Survey, and we, we survey the girls voluntarily and ask them about certain indicators that really tell us how girls are succeeding in the world, what the challenges are that they're facing, things like how they're doing in school. Are they attending school regularly? Are they getting in trouble in school? How they're doing with relationships? Are they involved with bullying or harassment? Are they victims of sexual abuse? Are they aware of good relationships and positive relationships they can seek out? Do they have a mentor, for example? Do they know how to advocate for themselves and with each other and with others? Do they know how to work within their communities? And we're, we've always looked to see whether the work we are doing is helping girls navigate those things. What we've done recently is to engage with an external research firm, the American Institutes for Research, and we had a validation study done of the work that we're doing. We matched our girls against girls from similar backgrounds in every way, except that they do not participate in Girls, Inc. And while I can't tell you exactly what the outcomes are, I can tell you that there were 19 measures against um, that we, we measured our girls against other girls who were otherwise like them, but not in Girls, Inc. And on those 19 measures, we see that our girls have the strengths that we would hope that they would have. They do more of the good things. They do less of the bad things. They are more successful where we think they should be successful. And there were some nice ancillary outcomes as well. It's not all correlated exactly to the programming. So there were some academic achievements that girls had, although we are not an academic program strictly. We are not, you know, we're not drilling them on literacy or mathematics or that kind of thing. But we still see that the positive impact of the work carries over into specific academic success and standardized testing. Are you across a broad spectrum of of communities? And I know that you have worked with students from various backgrounds, low income, high need, as well as kind of those higher SES communities. Where is, is Girls Inc. now? Girls Inc.'s mission is to inspire all girls to be strong, smart, and bold through a combination of advocacy and direct service. They mostly do the direct service with girls from low income backgrounds. That is the target market. We would we do not turn girls away, but where we're seeking to have the most impact is in the girls who we would say need us most, and that is mostly girls of low income background, low, girls from families of color, people who have recently arrived in the country and don't necessarily have all of their resources gathered yet, um, LGBTQ plus community members. That's those are the girls that we really focus on most. But as I said, we you know all girls any anyone who identifies as a girl is welcome to be a part of the experience. Thank you for that clarification. 
Mm-hmm. I think that that's an important statement. I read in one of your articles, you talked about helping young people bloom where they're planted and the importance of kind of investing in neighborhood schools and cultivating the talent where it's found. And and I think in particular, you highlighted some out-of-school time initiatives that could help support those schools. Why do you feel so strongly about, you know, that investment in neighborhood schools and, and the supports of after-school or out-of-school time interventions? I'm a very strong believer in the promise of public education. I think that one of the principles that this country is founded on is that when you pay taxes in a community, you have the right to public education, but I think it should be high-quality public education. And I know that for many families who are working, the hours of school do not cover enough time for your children to be not just supervised, but actually cared for. And as children get older and are not, you know, babies who just need to be cared for, they really need educational opportunities. They need eye-opening experiences. I think out-of-school time activities are really the best way to show young people the world. That's where you get to explore things. You can try things on. It doesn't have to be that we've identified you as a mathematician, and so you're in math school every day after school. Out-of-school time allows you to dabble and to experiment and to find different passions and to to switch gears a little bit. I think that it seems to be true, and this is not a research-based statement, but it seems to be true that children of lower income who are in schools that may be failing have less and less opportunity to really just be children and to explore. They're having to think about safety. They're having to think about food. They're having to do things that children really shouldn't have to do to survive. And I think out of school time is another hour or two that allows you just to be a child, just to to maybe to daydream, to hang out with friends, to talk about things, to play with things, and to have those resources that really should be a right. So I think about neighborhood schools, because those are the places that are more likely to say, we just can't provide all these resources, we're just turning it over to somebody else. And resources are not really being brought to bear in the areas that I think are most important. I really believe in time to be together with mostly children, but then a supervising adult who's well-trained and thoughtful about, you know, what kids need to do, not just to be academically successful, but to grow up to be good people. And the really the only way you can do that is if adults will invest in you and sit down with you and tell you, this is how I came to be a good person. This is what I think about when I make decisions. This is how I think about wanting to be treated and how I think about treating people. I think that that teachers are really burdened with everything that they have to teach you to pass your academic standards. I think out of school time is a really nice opportunity for people just to to relax a little bit and to think about the other things about being a good human being. We agree as well with adults playing such an important role, both in school and out of school with kids. And, you know, a lot of times the adults that are working with kids in out of school programs don't have some of the same training that teachers in schools have. What are some of the ways that the adults in your programs get trained to work with kids? Girls Inc. has a learning management system. So all of the adults are part of this learning management system. You sign in and we have resources available. People spend time in the courses and we can see from the centralized office how much time people have spent in the courses, how many modules they have participated in and how much they've learned. Uh, There's also live interaction. There are webinars. There are gatherings every so often to teach people in person. There are training events that happen. We've got a center in Indianapolis where people travel to be trained on particular programs. So one of the things I think that makes us successful is that we take all of that in hand. We know that it's you can't depend on people getting it in an ad hoc fashion. You can't trust people just to pick it up somehow. So we create the content and we provide access to the content and training to the volunteers. 
but it's, you know, something we would like for everybody. It's not something that we can necessarily take on on behalf of everybody, but we can demonstrate that it's possible to curate and make resources available that will strengthen the adult community and, and be sure that children are working with adults who are trained, supervised centrally, and really prepared to take on the difficult kinds of conversations that can come up in these settings. Great. And so just to be clear, the, the adults working with students are volunteers, yes? Yes. Well, not all of them. We have staff members and volunteers, but we are uh, largely volunteer-based. We talk a lot about social-emotional learning usually with our guests because that's something we're focused on. And and there's a lot of that running throughout threads of conversation we're having with guests. And here, you know, talking to you today, I think about the importance of that in, in your work at Girls Inc. In particular, how I think one of the things that, that we've found is that teachers feel sort of underprepared to address social emotional learning in the school context. Some of them have reported in kind of recent, you know, education surveys that they aren't getting access to good quality training around SEL. And I I guess I'm just curious what you think, you know, what prepares school leaders and teachers in the classroom to really understand social emotional learning um, and to be able to, to foster the right kinds of relationships with kids so that they can model that? Are there, are there tips? Are there specific things that you've seen that have assisted them in that? To me, I think it's a combination of training that's specific and real experience. And I think the hardest thing to get is experience. I think that through experience, usually you learn from moments where you really would have done something differently if you'd had the chance to go back over it again. I think what's most difficult for teachers is that the standards keep increasing and the commitment of time keeps increasing without more time being added. So teachers are asked to teach academic subjects. They're also teaching what they call soft skills, which I would argue are not soft skills at all, but you're, you know, you're trying to put everything in and then some things are tested and some things are not. And the children are from a whole range of, of backgrounds, culturally, linguistically, academically, emotionally, all of that is really being put together and in, into, you know, one 45 minute class. And I think teachers are really up against it. Besides which, I don't know that the delivery of the training is really necessarily keeping pace with the demands that teachers have. There's not really enough time for teachers to learn and practice these skills. And nobody likes to be faced with a task and unprepared. It's not impossible that teachers could learn this, but it's if it's happening in teacher prep programs now, then there's a generation of people who are left behind. I do think it is part of teacher prep. Culturally responsive pedagogy is really, you know, it's a big thing. And social emotional learning is in all of the good programs now. But what if you were a teacher candidate, you know, 50 years ago at this point? So, you know, when will you get that? And when do you get to practice? And if you do care, and you want to take it on, where's the money for the training coming from? Where's the time for the training coming from? How do schools recognize people for mastering those skills when the pay scales and the compensation and the pension doesn't take that into consideration? I think that school leaders need to think about that. Superintendents need to think about that. If there's really a value, then it needs to be communicated from the school board on down. And I don't know in the work that I've done that I've seen very many excellent models of that. I think people are, they're talking about wanting something to happen, but it's doing, doing that at the expense of teachers. It might work. Teachers are generally pretty generous people, but it's not necessarily fair and it's not necessarily the most efficient way to go about it. So Stephanie, I'm curious in the, in your new position and working, especially in with after school programs, is there anything that has come up in the last six months that's been a real surprise to you that was unexpected? I wouldn't say that anything was a real surprise yet. 
I came in knowing something about this work because Girls Inc. is something that I've been interested in for a number of years now. It's it's an organization I've kept my eye on, and I have gotten to know the the former president. I knew her for years before I came and took on this job because I think that the work is fascinating. It's They do excellent things. And coming from a school, I, I led a school that had extraordinary resources. And then I went to work at a foundation that supported very high need public education. So as you said, I, I saw both sides of that. And to see an organization like Girls Inc. establish this presence nationally and maintain the kind of strength that it has for such a long time, it's interesting because the circles I travel in, most people think in order to do anything good, you have to really have extraordinary resources. And what I see, what may be the most surprising is the the incredible amount that can be done with very modest resources, actually. And on a you know expense ratio on a per girl basis, we really are not spending that much money. And yet the results are extraordinary. It's it's not in the promise of girls that that doesn't surprise me at all. It's It doesn't surprise me at all to see these young black and brown girls achieving incredible things because that has been true. It's, it's just that equity has not always been true. So it's, I don't really, I don't know that I would say that I've been technically surprised by things, but I've, I've been delighted by a lot of things. And maybe that's a little bit that it's coming to work each day and still finding not genuine surprise, but that sense of wonder that it's, you know, it's happening again, it's happening still. How do you, you know, in, Equity is, of course, on the minds or hopefully on the minds of of those working in education. And I wonder how you bring that into preparing the adults that are working with kids. I'm sure that you have a range of experiences of the adults that are volunteering or, or becoming mentors in the program. How do you educate them around equity and and sort of the Girls Inc. approach to you know creating more equitable environments? I should clarify, I don't actually work directly with the volunteers. The Each organization has its own leadership. They have their own executive director and they have their own board members and staff. So it's not really my role to be in direct contact with the organizations at the local level. But what I do take responsibility for is the tone at the national level and the work that we do as a national staff. So I'm working with the employees of the national organization to set the tone and to set the direction. We're just launching diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. We, before I came, had a diversity and inclusion initiative. And just before I came, the community agreed that equity needed to be a piece of that. And we needed to really rebrand that as DEI, not just DNI. So I, I think it's a, a stay tuned kind of situation. It's not, it's not clear exactly how we'll go forward, but what's important to me is that it not seemed to be because of who I am or what I look like. This work was happening before I came under the previous administration, so to speak. It's work that I certainly believe is valuable, but I think it, it points out all the more that equity is ongoing. It's constantly difficult, even for the people who are the best educated in this regard. There's nobody who works at this national organization who doesn't deeply believe in giving each girl the opportunity she needs, which is what equity really is at its core. We want to find out what would it take to help a particular girl succeed, and then we will help girls, plural, succeed. But it's not as though there's a sort of Band-Aid that we put on it and say, you know, you might have a light scratch or you may, you know, have a really bad wound, but this is the Band-Aid and this is what we offer. We really are trying to meet girls where they are. And this is also thinking about the communities that they live in. We're not taking them out of the communities they live in. We're trying to help them and help the communities that they live in. 
the girls are really the secret. So we're not trying to cherry pick girls and get them out of where they are. We're trying to certainly help them out of bad situations if they are in bad situations. But we would never say that the entire community and everybody who lives there is the bad situation. It's, it is harassment that is a bad situation. It is bullying. It is abuse that is a bad situation. But we're really trying to say equity is to say, you know, do you need homework help in order to succeed? Do you need somebody to walk you home in order to succeed? Those are different resources. But if we have them available, then we'll make them available to the girls. So working with the volunteers is really, it's the responsibility of the individual leaders. Things are very different in the rural organizations from the way that they might be in in an urban area. Poverty is different in different places. People are arrivals from different countries in different places and it you know sort of plays differently if you you know if you're a recent arrival to this country and you land in New York City you have a different experience than if you end up in a small town and so we're you know we're letting people kind of do what they need to do for each other in order to make that one girl's experience what it needs to be and then in turn we know that that girl will achieve her full potential and everybody's experience will be lifted up by her entry into the workforce or into politics or, you know, wherever she chooses to be in the world. Yeah. It seems like your approach is it's, it's very individualized and and pretty Mm -hmm. kind of hyper local, which, you know, when that's done well, you have such deep effects for the person and for the community. So it's it's exciting and we'll definitely Mm -hmm. be following that to see those results later. Yeah, you know, I, I'm curious too, just kind of following on the, the hyper local to sort of taking it up to a higher level of things that maybe are common across different socioeconomic stratas. And I, I wonder about what you're noticing girls and social media. We hear a lot these days about how social media is affecting particularly girls. And just wondering if you had. Particularly ages 10 to 14. Mm-hmm, right? Early adolescence, right? And wondering if. If there has been conversation about that or or specific approaches that you've been working on? That I don't really know if I can speak to specifically. It's something that I remember from more from my days in independent schools and working with girls just very generally about that. So I don't there's I don't have a Girls Inc. based answer for that question. I probably shouldn't, you know, try to speak specifically to that. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. Girls Inc. does have what's called the Girls Bill of Rights, which I think, you know, speaks to to a lot of the elements that you're hoping are instilled in, in those girls that are worked with through the program, but also in the environments that are serving them. And in particular, things like confidence, enthusiasm for an originality, things that are really focused on their own conception of themselves, and then preparing for interesting work and economic independence. And I know that you had done work in the past with, it was a code-based organization, right? I'm on the board of an organization called Code Nation. It's not just girls, but it's students from high need public schools. Okay, great. So, so you're on the the board of Code Nation, and I think you know there there's a variety of interests and things that come out in in children and adolescents. And as girls are preparing to become independent and in the workforce, there's financial literacy, there's social emotional learning components. Do you have sort of goals within the programs of workforce readiness? How do you kind of relate your programs to workforce readiness, if at all? There definitely are programs that are specific to helping girls explore different careers and prepare for them if they decide that they're interested in them. 
that is a big piece of it. And most of the partnerships that we have with corporations are really founded on the principle that they are committed to the local community and to the workforce of that community. So they want to be sure that they are doing their part to encourage, particularly if it's a STEM or computer or science related career in some way, they want to be sure that they are taking full advantage of the potential of particularly low income girls of color to enter that workforce because they know that their workforce skews very much masculine and and they really want to be sure that they're providing that opportunity. I think though this the training it's not so much training as as it is exp- exploration it's really a chance for girls to know what the careers are that are out there it's a chance for them to know what it might take to do a job like that and to put two and two together to say well if i like to do this kind of activity if for example i love it in the maker space then it might be that engineering is something I can explore. And this is what engineering really is. What I might have thought about engineering was, you know, possibly older men, white lab coats, protractors sticking out of their pocket. But what really engineering looks like is the things I'm getting to do in after school, the women who come and do speed mentoring with us through the Girls Inc. program, the field trips that we have where we can actually see a company where engineering is taking place. And there's all different jobs that are related to that that they get to see as well, because there will be somebody in marketing in that company. There will be somebody in human resources. There'll be somebody in the finance office. So it's not just that you need to learn to build an engine. For example, if this is what interests you, you can be one of the people who support that enterprise. You can do communications for the engine manufacturing company. So what we're really trying to do is not churn girls out and have them be locked into particular careers, but to give them a good sense of what this might be like. I think what we're finding, especially in the research, is that when girls know somebody, when they can identify that that there's a woman who has done that job and they've actually had a conversation with that woman, it opens up a whole lot of potential for them to think about their, themselves as a person in that line of work. And conversely, if they, you can tell them anything you want about how all careers are open to all girls. If they never see a woman in a job and they never speak to an actual human woman who says this is a great career and this is a great life, it's unlikely that they really believe you. So there's not something about building a workforce. Certainly it's preparing people to lead the lives they'd like to lead. And for most people that involves having some kind of meaningful work and income and stability. But it's not about saying, I will work with a company and I will make five employees for their factory floor. That we really don't do because too much of the time, I think that people who come from backgrounds of disadvantage are helped in that kind of way where, you know, they owe something and I don't, and people don't ask us this. I think they know who we are as an organization, but I I will never believe that a girl owes you something just because her family happens, you know, not to have quite as much money as they hoped to. So, you know, you don't necessarily, you, you can't indenture people. Education should be free. It should be excellent for everybody. And the potential that it unleashes shouldn't be part of a payback system. And Stephanie, you mentioned also that a, that a key part of Girls Inc. also includes mentorship. And I'm curious about the mentoring programs that you've been involved in and also whether you yourself have had an influential mentor over the years. Mentoring at Girls Inc. really is the key to the whole experience in some ways. We have trained people who work with the girls in a consistent way. And even though we do, I mentioned speed mentoring earlier, we do have interactions where you can go to a company and have a quick moment of interacting and getting to know the people in those careers. 
the real foundation of it is sustained mentoring people who show up and are there for the girls on a regular basis and who tell the girls that they matter. That's really what is at the core of everything. I think, honestly, that you can teach them anything. You could do any activity with them. But being in the company of an adult who is thoughtful and prepared and genuinely cares is the key to everything. And as far as my own life, I've had so many mentors of all different kinds. It's just been a really important part of who I am. It's part of the benefit of going to a women's college is that whether or not you want a mentor, somebody will offer to help you and they'll just tell you, look, this is this is how things happen. This is how people get ahead in life. This is how business is done. This is how connections are made. So ha- helping people network and creating a mentoring relationship and also reaching out and saying to somebody, look, I you don't maybe want to admit it yet, but you are struggling with this. And so when you're ready, this is what you need to do. That kind of thing too is common and familiar to me in the places that I've grown up and been educated. And, you know, there have been times when I have thought I don't need help. I'm, you know, I'm 18 years old and I know everything, but it's it's fortunate that women have still said, okay, and when you're done being stubborn, I'm here and you can you can count on me and I will I will still give you advice even though you said that really bratty thing. So it's it definitely is an important part of life. So given the experiences you've had outside of, you know, directly being a school leader within the school, and I know that there's policy and advocacy work that Girls Inc. is doing as well. What's one thing that you really would like to impart back to classroom teachers or school leaders? Like if you look at your experience across your career, if you could give them like one key takeaway, like you should really focus on this, or I really hope that you're thinking about this, or is there any sort of nugget of wisdom that that you wish could be imparted? I think I would say that the work I've done has helped me gradually understand just how strong the headwinds are against educators, particularly in public schools, particularly where resources are scarce. And I think what I'd say to them is try not to get tired. Everything goes against that. I think, as I said, more and more is asked of teachers with less and less reward or even just resource. I don't know that most teachers are really in it for the personal reward. They really want to see kids succeed, but they can't even be given the tools sometimes to make that happen. And I think I think it would be nice if we could find more ways to recognize innovation among teachers and to recognize good ideas and best practices and to maybe bring those things together. It's teachers are working in isolation. Schools are solving problems on their own and there's not a conversation. Certainly there's not even a conversation across districts sometimes, but there's not a conversation nationally about how to solve some of these problems. And I think that the ways that better resourced institutions get ahead are, you know, by letting people know their best practices and having those best practices adopted and having the, the the knowledge bank become more broadly disseminated, where I think teachers often will figure out something for themselves and they'll sort of toil in obscurity. And I'd like to try to fix that. If I, If there could be something I could leave as a legacy, I'd like to bring more of a national umbrella over some of these other issues that adults are trying to solve on behalf of children as well. Yeah. And do you think that that's to kind of enable that? Is it like, do, do people need better supports in schools? I mean, the, the peer supports or leadership supports and opportunities for self-care, what kind of specifically have you seen that's been working really well? 
I certainly think that people who care for young people are in need of more self-care and not because they're, you know, having a bad time or, you know, sort of making it look bad, but just because it's just a, it's a grueling thing. But I, I would say, for example, as teachers are asked to insert social emotional learning into a standard curriculum, as they're asked to think about not just how to teach people an academic subject, but also how to teach them to grow up to be good adults. If each teacher takes each lesson plan and individually adds that to it, it's just a lot of people time. It's just, it's not the way anybody would do anything in business. If there's a best practice, we would package it and we would share it. So, you know, rather than have each teacher sit down with five or six lessons for tomorrow and try to figure out how to take a book that was written in 1940 and, you know, maybe update it a couple of times and and insert this kind of value into it and then give that to her class, which has 35 learners, three of whom have you know, an IEP. I mean, it's, it's just a really complex process. And yet we ask teachers to do that every single night. And then we, and then the bad media sort of overwhelms all the good media. You hear many more bad things about teachers than you do good things about teachers. And yet they have to get up each day and do that again. I'd love to see some sharing, some standard information, some better ways of getting training faster, delivered in the teacher's time frame and in ways a teacher can relate to, and then with recognition that it is time and that it that's time that might be taken away from their own families or their own hobbies or their own interests or their own self-care in order to give it to those children. And and that's fair. That's the job that they took on. But it's, you know, you hear so much about firefighters and police officers and all the valiant work that they do. I think teachers could be better respected in this country. Are there things that you you do for yourself to really re-energize and, and focus, you know, on your own work? Because we, we talk about this here too. It's There's direct work with kids that can, you know, can be draining and you need to take care of yourself. There's also the, you know, trying to take on the national conversation mm-hmm. or, or develop more systemic supports. And that too can be draining because you're kind of faced with a lot of very complex problems. So what are the things you do to so you can recharge or for your own self-care? I have plenty of hobbies. I like to spend a lot of time reading. I do a fair amount of shopping, sewing, many, many things to recharge. But honestly, I find the national conversation exhilarating. And you know, maybe 20 years from now, I'll start getting tired. But we're making progress. And it, it really feels like a moment when, you know, when, in conversations like this conversation today, people care about this and we're pulling in the same direction at this point. So it's not the moment to get tired. So there are little ways that I think I and people like me like to recharge, but it's, it doesn't feel like a moment to step out. It really, this is the moment to be here because I think at any point, something great is about to happen. There, there have been a couple of people who have said something similar to me. And I feel like hearing that recharges me. Like sometimes I might feel like I'm wrestling with something and then somebody else says, this is the time, this is the right. And, and it kind of reminds me, it's a nice reminder of like, yeah, actually this is really engaging work. Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you, it's really reinforcing and validating to see things, you know, happening in the world that are really positive. And, you know, Stephanie, as you know, our podcast is called Grow Kinder. And, and we often ask our guests, what is an act of kindness that you've witnessed recently, knowing that acts of kindness have ripple effects around the community? And just curious about something that you've that you've seen recently. It's funny. I'm in New York City and New York City is a place where 
you wouldn't expect it, but you just, you walk outside and in two seconds, you'll see an act of kindness. It's a city where people are so considerate of each other. And today it's sort of a rainy, wet, horrible, snowy day. And I walk to work and it's about a 10 minute walk. And I can't even count at this point how many people I saw come out of the subway without an umbrella, look up and look miserable and have just a complete stranger with an umbrella pass by and say, come on, where are you walking to? And just put an umbrella over them and take them someplace. It's a simple thing, but it's a pretty normal thing. And it's not, you know, it's like giving up a seat on the subway to someone who looks like they could use a seat. It's not a very big deal. It's not grandiose. It's not like anybody's expecting a round of applause. It's just, it's just normal. You know, I can stand up. I've got an umbrella. I just do this thing. And I think, I don't think people think that about big cities. I don't think they think that about New York City. People do rush around and we're busy, but you can see that happen a lot. You know, if you open your eyes to it, I think then you also know if you've seen that, then you know that you could actually do that. You could help a person not, you know, get cold, wet rain down their neck at the beginning of a Monday after a holiday. (laughs) It's a terrible way to start the week. And so people were saved. New York gets a bad rap, but I've always had pleasant experiences there. I don't think I've gone there and ever felt not welcome. No, we're nice people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, this has been a great conversation. I, I wonder if our listeners wanted to learn more about you and your work at Girls Inc., where could they find out more about that? Our website is www.girlsinc.org. Well, we really do appreciate your time today and, and uh, the work that you're doing at Girls Inc. And thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Hall. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Stephanie Hall, President and CEO of Girls Inc. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. 